So what are we going to do tonight? Well, here's how I want to start. I mentioned last week. Imagine having coffee with Solomon. Okay, you're sitting at Starbucks, your favorite, you know, Voca, wherever you go for coffee, and you're just sitting across the table from King Solomon, letting him share everything he knows. He's somewhere around 70. He's lived a long life. He's been a king. He's wise. He's written Proverbs. He's written the book of uh, Song of Solomon. He's got, you know, he's got lots of stuff he wants to tell you. And that's how I want us to really think about this tonight, is if you're sitting across the table from this guy and hearing what he says. Now, what you need to remember is that you don't have to accept everything he says. Just because he's Solomon, just because he's the son of David, just because he's the king of Israel, not every word that comes out of his mouth is gospel. And some of the things he says we take with a grain of salt, and some we, we say, okay, I like that. I don't quite get that. And we got to remember who he is and remember what he's been going through. And so what I want to do tonight is kind of look at this from a, a, a perspective of every guy in this room has a view on life. If you're 25 or if you're 85, you have a view on life. And your view on life is affected by what you do, your career, uh, your skill sets, your temperament, your abilities, how you were raised, where you were raised, the kind of family you were in. All those things affect you. And so you bring to life views on all kinds of things, and those views come from your different perspectives. So in looking at these three chapters, the one thing that kept jumping out at me is he, he's giving us his views. And he's, he's giving us his views based on where he's coming from. So this is a summary of what we're going to cover tonight. It's Solomon sharing his views on these seven things, his view from the bench, because he's, he's a judge. He's the primary judge of Israel. The view from the other side of the fence, um, looking at what others have and you don't have. And we all wrestle with that sometimes, right? The grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, the perspective of a loner, his view being a loner, which is interesting when you think that he's the king of Israel, surrounded by women, surrounded by singers, surrounded by all kinds of hangers-on, administrative personnel, slaves, you name it, but he was a loner and he was lonely. Uh, he's going to give his perspective on looking back in life. Again, he's a 70-year-old man looking back on life. What's his view on life? We're going to look at his view on the house of God. How do you, how do you as, a, as a godly man, approach the house of God? And, and in this context, he's really talking about your relationship with God, not necessarily the place of the house of God, but when you come to be with God, when you come to worship God. He's going to give his perspective on the corner office. What is life like from the corner office? When you get to this place you think you wanted, you think you achieved, you think you got the corner office and the plaque on the door, and suddenly you realize that somebody else has a bigger office and a bigger plaque, and they make more money. And then finally, he's going to give us his view from the deathbed, because he's really getting close. Now, for us, we sit there and go, 70, wait a minute. But that was a long time to live in that day and age. And so he's going to give us his view on all these things. And so keep that in mind as you're listening to him. This is his view. Now, there's going to be in it a lot of biblical truth that we need to glean, but there's also going to be some perspective that comes from his life. 
how he sees life. So let's start out in chapter 4. Here's what it says. He goes, again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. Remember, under the sun just means life on this earth. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So he talks about the oppressions he, he sees. He talks about those who are oppressed, and he talks about the oppressors. So this is going to take us into his view as a judge. He is the supreme court justice of all of Israel. In that day and age, when um, anybody had a dispute, they brought it to the gate. And at the gate, the king would sit, and he would offer a judgment. It's interesting to, to note that when his father David was king, his older brother Absalom wanted to take the kingdom away from his father, so what did he do? He went to the gate, and he would get there when his father wasn't there, and he would act as judge. He would listen to people's problems, and he would help solve them, and he won over the people because he was acting like a judge. He was acting like he was fair. He was acting like he was doing them a favor, and he won over the hearts of the people, and then he won over the kingdom, and he for a very short period of time, took over the kingdom from his father David. So at the gate, this is where he would come, Solomon, to settle disputes between citizens, between anybody and everybody. And as a judge, he would see all kinds of disputes, all kinds of issues between people. That's why he can talk about oppressors and the oppressed. And he's basically, over the years, he's seen anything and everything. He's been on the bench long enough to where he has seen the small things and the big things. And the one thing that bugs him is that it's, it, he sees this oppression going on in people who have no one to help him, and people who have all the power and all the money, and it's just not fair what happens. Because even as a judge, he can't always solve all the problems. Because sometimes the rich who are oppressing, use their power and influence to get their way. And, and so even as the king, even as the judge, he looks at all this oppression going on, and he boils it down to three groups, the living, the dead, and the not yet born, which is really kind of interesting that he's going to talk about these two, three groups, and they're going to go up in value as we go down the list, which is kind of weird, right? the living, the dead, and the not yet born. He puts more value on not being born than on being alive. And here's why. He had asked God at the very beginning of his kingdom for something. What did he ask for? Wisdom, right? God said, I'll give you anything you want. God offers him essentially a blank check, and he goes, I need wisdom. He says, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? I need your help. I need wisdom. I, I need to know how to be a good judge because I know that's going to be one of my jobs. He had probably seen his father sit on the judgment seat, the bema seat is what it's called, and judge the people. And so he wants to be a good judge, so he asks for wisdom. So he's going to have this unique view that most people don't have. I'm not a judge, never have been. I judge a lot of people, but I'm not paid to do it. Um, <laughs> I don't have that capacity, but he did. And so he's able to tell us some things as a judge that maybe we don't know or haven't seen. And so he wants to judge fairly. He wants to make sure people get a fair shake. 
and he wants to defend the defenseless. And, and he, I think in, at the end of the day, Solomon really is a good guy. I, I, I don't want to paint him in a light where he's just a total loser because he's not. He's just a guy who is somewhat confused about life. I think he was a godly man who got confused and got away from God. Um, and so he wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to be a good judge. And in Proverbs chapter 31, we know that chapter from the uh, statements about the godly woman, the Proverbs 31 one woman, but there's also verses in there that are written by the mother of King Lemuel. Now there's no reference in the Old Testament to a King Lemuel of Israel. So some scholars think it's a pseudonym for Solomon. We don't know. But Solomon records in Proverbs these, these words of wisdom from the mother of the king to King Lemuel. Here's what she says. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now who collected all these Proverbs and put them in the book of Proverbs? Solomon. So Solomon was very familiar with this passage and this idea of you are to be like King Lemuel, you are to be a fair judge, a good judge. You are to defend the, the defenseless, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And so as a judge, he tried to do those things, but he kept seeing oppression, people taking advantage of other people. And what he sees is that the oppressors, those who are doing the oppressing, are greedy. He sees people who come and they already have a whole lot, but they want more. And so what do they do? They take from those who can't defend themselves. So the guy who has all the land and he wants more land goes to the people who have very little land and he takes it from them. He swindles them out of it. And everything looks good on paper. Everything looks legal, but he's basically swindled these people out of their land. And so that rubs Solomon the wrong way. He sees these people addicted to what? Getting acquiring, accumulating more and more and more. And yet there's people over here who don't have enough. They can barely make ends meet and they're oppressed. He talks about these people being backed by power. They have influence. They know the right people. And, and we know that happens, right? Even in our culture, the people who have the power, the people who have the influence seem to get away with everything. And this is going to be a constant theme in, the, in this book. Is he talks about the people who are wicked who seem to always get away with it. And the righteous tend to suffer. It's the idea of the inequities of life. So even as a judge, he sees these things. They're insensitive to the needs of others. They don't really care about the poor. They really don't care about the needy. And one of the main indictments that God had against the people of Israel was this very thing. You take advantage of widows. You take advantage of orphans. You cheat people. And that's against my will. I love the poor. I love the, the helpless and the defenseless. And yet, what does Solomon see as a judge? This very thing going on within his own kingdom. That's his view from the bench. So he talks about the living, the dead, and the not yet born. And he says the living, their life stinks because they're still alive and their life is marked by tears. Those who are living and oppressed live a life of sorrow. And they also get no justice and comfort. Now, wouldn't it be horrible to be a judge who sees people walking away without justice? And, and yet, I think sometimes that's what Solomon saw happen. He couldn't always 
bring things to a closure. He couldn't always make things right, so he would see these people walk away dejected, having lost everything. And so he looks at that and he goes, man, it'd be better just to be dead. Again, that's kind of a sad way to look at life, but he goes, you're better off dead than to suffer through life. Because if you're dead, you can't be oppressed. You can't oppress a dead person. You can't harm a dead person. So in his mind, he looks at all the inequities and the injustices, and he goes, man, it stinks to be alive and be oppressed. You'd be better off dead. But even better than that would be to not be born at all. Because you don't ever get exposed to injustice. Now you can see the negativity that's creeped into this guy's life. That he's allowed the affairs of life to, to so darken the way he looks at life. But this is his view. And some of you may have negative views about things because of the way you've been treated, the things that you've gone through. You, you've been dealt a deck of cards that really didn't turn out the way you thought they would, and your perspective is skewed. That's Solomon. He sees all the injustice, and he goes, man, it'd be better never to have been born where you don't have any threat of oppression. You never had life, so you never had anything taken away from you in life. But that gives you an idea of his view as a judge over Israel. He says, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. That's his view. That's his outlook. Is it negative? Yes. Can I try to put a positive spin on it? I could try, but it's going to be really tough. It's his view because of the things that he's seen. And we all suffer from that because of things that have happened to us, things that we've seen. Then in verse 4 he goes on, Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after win. This idea of wanting what somebody else has. So he's got another view, and it's from the other side of the fence. It's his view looking at people wanting something they don't have. And he's seen it happen all through his kingdom, and he's also seen it in his own life. And every man in this room has struggled with this, and probably still struggles with this. You, you get semi-content with what you have until you raise your eyes and you see what somebody else has. And it looks better over there. You think you're happy with your job until you talk to somebody who has a job that's better than your job, and you wish you had his job. It's, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? No, it's not. It's rarely greener. It just looks that way. And then when you get over there, you realize, this tastes and looks just like what I was eating over there. That looks greener now. And you're never satisfied. So what he's telling us is that even the oppressed, those rich people with all the power and the money and the greed, have somebody above them, which is what drives their greed. You know, because... Samuel over there has got more land than I have. Well, how am I going to get more land? Well, I'll take it away from poor Jacob over here. Because he can't defend himself. And I'll swindle him in court. I'll get his land, and then I'll have as much land as he does. What's the problem with that scenario? Well, not only does Jacob suffer, but then you found out that Samuel's got two more pieces of property you knew nothing about. Now what do you do? 
Well, I got to go swindle somebody else. You're never satisfied. And it drives you, that idea of the other side of the fence, the envy, the greed that I have to have what everybody else has. Everybody wants something that somebody else has. We all suffer from it. And this is where, if you're, again, you're having coffee with Solomon and he's talking about these things, you can sit there and go, God, poor Solomon, what's wrong with you? But you're going to realize that there's some truth in what he says. And even though he's got a warped perspective sometimes, we have to look at our own lives and go, man, do I even, have, maybe I have that same perspective. Maybe I'm a little bit too greedy. Maybe I want too much. Maybe I am not satisfied and content with what I have. And it reminds me of what James writes in his letter. He's writing to Christians, and this is what he says. So this helps bring it into our sphere. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Again, writing to Christians. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. See, this is an endemic problem to humanity. And even Christians struggle with it. Because who's he writing to? Christians. Even the king of Israel, the people of God, struggled with it. The idea of, I gotta have more. And the quarreling and the fighting and even the killing to get what somebody else has. I gotta have it. And yet, it shows our dissatisfaction. It shows our lack of contentment. It shows our lack of trust in God. It shows that we are greedy. It shows that we are dissatisfied. But it most certainly doesn't show that we're godly. So envy. Envy is a lousy reason to work. Why do you work? Is it to provide for your family? Great. Go for it. Is it driven by greed? Don't go for it. Is it because somebody has something that you don't have and the only way you think you can get it is to work more so you can have it? That's a lousy reason to work because you'll never scratch the itch. And apathy, he's going to tell us, is another lousy reason not to work. Because he's going to go on in the very next verses and he's going to talk about the idea of the lazy guy, the fool who folds his hand and does nothing. So you got the guy who works his tail off because he's greedy and he wants what everybody else has. So he just works, works, works to get it. And then you got the guy that just folds his hand and does nothing. And he says he eats his own flesh. And Solomon looks at these things and he goes, man, it's like two extremes. The workaholic and the lazy guy. What do we do? Which one should we do? I think basically what he's telling you and me as we sit across the coffee table is he says, do something, but be willing to be satisfied with less. Work. Nothing wrong with work. Nothing wrong with achievement. Nothing wrong with the corner office necessarily. Nothing wrong with getting a raise or trying to get a promotion. Nothing wrong with that, but be satisfied with less. Learn to be content. Otherwise, you'll never get to where you think you're going. And see, Solomon learned this in his own life. Even though he was wealthy and wise and had everything, he never had enough. And, and I think there are a lot of very wealthy people in our church, and I think if you could sit down with them and say, what have you learned from your life? Many of them would probably say, the money has never really made me happy. The money has bought me stuff. The money has made my life somewhat easy, but it's never made my marriage better, and it's never made my kids better. It's, it's, it is what it is. It's money. 
It's a commodity. But it doesn't buy contentment. It certainly doesn't buy joy. So he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. That's one of those proverbial statements. It's like a Yoda statement. You know, just kind of, what? What does that mean? But it's the idea of just relax. Slow down. Don't kill yourself trying to work so you can get more. But this idea of a handful of quietness is better than two handfuls of toil where you, you just never get there. Relax. Slow down. Enjoy your life. Don't kill yourself. Then he goes on, he says, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either a son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? For whom am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? Why am I killing myself? And this one's an interesting one to me, because again, you're talking to a guy who has more money than he knows what to do with. And he's talking about a guy who's worked his tail off and he's never satisfied and he's never figured out, wow, who's all this for? Why do I have all this stuff? Who, who are all these buildings I've built for? Who are all these fountains that I've, I've built and pools and these gardens? Who is it for? One person who has no other. This one is fascinating to me because he's telling you what it's like to be lonely. You ever been lonely? You know, my wife went away. Uh, she took my youngest daughter who just graduated from A&M. And I know that was coming. Um, and they went to Ethiopia for two, about two and a half weeks. And so I was alone at home. And I had more people go, are you, are you lonely? Went, no, I'm I'm happy as a clam. <laughs> Should I be? Should I be lonely? I like to be alone. You know, it's okay. I'm okay. I got the dog. I got the cat. I like the dog. I hate the cat. But I, I got companionship. But I don't mind being alone. Some people don't like to be alone. And Solomon had how many wives? 700. How many concubines? 300. How do you get lonely? How do you get lonely? He had slaves. He had singers. He had administrative personnel. He had everybody around him, but he was alone. Because he talks about what is it like to have no one? See, he's at the top, but he's alone. You can be surrounded with people and be alone. Uh, one of my daughters texted me just before uh, the Bible study tonight, and she works for a company. She lives in Atlanta, and she travels a lot, and she's on planes a lot. And, and she said, Dad, I'm just really having a down day. I said, what do you think it is? She goes, well, I think I'm tired because I've been on planes for the last three weeks. And she said, I'm, I'm just lonely, and I don't know why I'm so lonely. And I said, because you're sitting in airports surrounded by people you don't know. And there's nothing worse than being surrounded by people that you really have no relationships with because you start to feel alone. And that's what she's struggling with. That's what I think he struggled with. And he's obsessed with self. Remember, he, he says, I built, I made, I, I created, I bought for myself. It's all about Solomon. Solomon is obsessed with Solomon. And he's isolated himself in the midst of Lots of people. 
And so what he's talking about in these verses is the need for people in your life, relationship, because he's lonely. He doesn't have relationships in spite of the 700 wives and 300 concubines, in spite of the slaves, in spite of the courtiers, in spite of all these people who surround his life and all the friends who have come to the kingdom because he's got money. He's got no shortage of friends, but he just has no relationships, and he feels alone. And so he's sitting across the table from you having coffee going, man, don't forget to have relationships. One of the reasons we have you guys sit around tables is so that you might build relationships. One of the hardest things for men to do is build relationships. You have friends. I know you have friends. Some have more than others. But you don't necessarily have deep friendships. I was challenged years ago uh, by a pastor, and he said, when you die, who are the six men who are going to carry your casket? I went, uh, well, there's a, uh, no, no, he's, no, I don't want him to do it. And uh, how about, no, no. He probably won't be alive, so it doesn't matter anyway. And, I couldn't think of like two men that were intimate enough in my life that I would want to carry my casket. You don't want a, you don't want a stranger carrying your casket, right? You don't want an enemy carrying your casket. But we don't really work on this, the, the, the depth of relationship. And he's alone, he's isolated. And so he says in verse 9, we're familiar with this passage, but we, we take it out of its context. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. He's a king, but he longs for a friendship. He longs for a relationship, somebody that he can talk with, somebody you can do life with. And he says, because it's a good reward. See, he's telling you from 70 years of life, make a friend, because the relationship is the reward, not the stuff, not all the accumulation. You need somebody who cares for you and is concerned about you because there's strength in that. There's nothing worse than the Lone Ranger Syndrome, and we all suffer from it. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it alone. I don't need anybody. Yes, you do. Especially as believers in Jesus Christ, we are built for community. We're built to have relationship. And I think men are built by God to have relationships with other men. Deep, lasting relationship. Intimate relationships. And I know that word makes many of us uncomfortable. But we need that. Somebody will speak truth into my life. See, Solomon, I don't believe, had anybody who spoke truth into his life. Nobody would say, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait, wait. You already have 699 wives. Why do you need another one? Nobody, because everybody was afraid of the king. And he longed for that. He, he goes on and talks about if one falls, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man prevail against one who is alone, two, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's another famous line from Ecclesiastes, but we again take it out of its context. Who wrote it? Solomon. What Solomon longed for? Just a handful of close relationships. The view of the loner. So it's better for a poor and wise youth, he says, than an old fool and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. What's he talking about? 
He, this, this is an autobiographical section. This is Solomon, I believe, talking about Solomon. And he describes himself at one time being a poor and wise youth. Then he became an old and foolish king, which is he at the time he's writing this, an old foolish king. And he's looking back and he says, man, there was a day when I was poor, but I was wise. I think he's referring to the fact that when he first started, he really had nothing. Everything had been given to him. Even when he was the son of the king, before he made it to the throne, he was wealthy only because his father gave him his wealth. So in that sense, he was poor. He didn't really have anything that was his. He didn't have a kingdom that was his or that he had built. But he was wise because God had given him wisdom. But what happened? Seventy years of life. And he ends up at the end and he goes, I'm an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. And he's not saying that's a good thing. He's saying that's a bad thing. So he's looking back. Older people look back. Because looking forward is kind of scary. So we look back. My mother's 97 years old. And she, when I get together with her, she spends 90% of her time looking back. She can't remember what she had for lunch, but she can remember her childhood. So she looks back. And it's fascinating to sit and talk to her. So here's Solomon looking back, and he, he tells us about his life. He tells us what it was like when I was younger and how I got to be old. And he talks about going from poverty. Again, not literal poverty, but a young man who really has nothing, no name, no kingdom, nothing, but he then becomes wealthy. He goes from young to old. He goes from wise to foolish. See, we're all in a transition, right, in life, going from one place to another. And that's all he's telling us. And he talks about going from prison to the throne. I think that simply means that at one time he was his father's son and everything his father said he had to do. I guarantee if you've got teenagers, they feel like they're prisoners sometimes. Dad, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to come in at 10? Why can't I stay out later? Why can't I have the car? Why can't I have more money? And they feel like they're your prisoner. And in a sense, they are because they don't have all the authority and they don't have the right to do whatever they want to do. He didn't either. But then he gets to the throne and he's got all the power he wants. But there's still something lacking. He talks about there's no end to all the people. I've made it to 70. I'm the king. There's no end of all the people that I lead. I got more people serving me and under me than anybody can imagine. But he says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a striving after wind. They won't even remember me. Had not Solomon written the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Song of Solomon, we would know nothing about him. There's going to be people who know nothing about you when you die. And that's just life. It's just reality. But for Solomon, it bugs him. Those who come later will not rejoice in him, and it's all vanity. See, his status in life has changed. He went from poor to rich. He went from wise to foolish. He went from poverty to the kingship to wealth. But his fame is going to flame out. He's going to be nobody. And he still has no purpose in life. He still has no idea what's, what's going on at the end of his life. Again, the greatest thing I get out of the book of Ecclesiastes is I don't want to be that way. I don't want to end my life that way. I don't want to have the view of Solomon. And so he transitions, and now he's going to talk about your relationship with God. 
And he's going to tell you, here's my view of my relationship with God. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So guard your steps. Don't be rash. Be careful in your relationship with God. What did he learn in 70 years of life? Guard your steps. Don't be rash. Treat God with dignity. Treat God with honor. Treat God with reverence. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Don't make oaths you're not going to keep. Don't tell God something you, you're going to do that you're not going to do. Guard your steps. Guard your way in your relationship with God. It's His view from the house of God. This is what it's like. Be careful. It's a place of sacrifice. He's really just talking about where you go to meet God. See, you come here to meet God, either in here or in the sanctuary, but there ought to be other places you go to meet God all throughout the day. And be careful when you go there. Don't treat him flippantly. Don't treat God disrespectfully. And I think Solomon is telling you that, you know, I did sometimes. One of the greatest ways he disrespected God was by what? Worshiping other gods. God said, have no other gods before you. He had gods of all kinds all over the place because he married so many women and he worshiped their gods and their gods and their idols led him away from God. So he says, draw near to God and he says, and listen. See, this is crucial. If you're going to come in to hear God, if you're going to come into this Bible study, listen. Don't, don't listen to me. Listen to God. And the word he uses is Shema and it means to hear and obey. We're all good at hearing. We're just not really great on the second part sometimes. Hear and obey. Listen to God and do what God tells you to do. Otherwise, you're a fool. And Solomon's sitting there at 70 years old telling you, man, there's been so many times I've been a fool. I listened, but I didn't obey. I didn't do what God wanted me to do. And I offered sacrifices to God, but without obedience, without doing what he wants. I made commitments to God that I didn't keep. I was rash. I was quick with my words. I prayed wordy and verbose prayers. I was, I wanted to impress everyone with how spiritual I am, but I'm really not. So all of these things represent the life of a fool, not the, the life of a wise man. And yet he was the wisest man who ever lived. But he could live like a fool as well, right? Because he got things out of perspective. I love this from 1 Samuel. What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. What does God want from you at the end of the day? Obedience. Listen. Obey. Do what I tell you to do. Trust me. And you'll have joy in your life. You'll have contentment in your life. And yet Solomon's saying, you know what? I didn't always do that. Don't do as I did. Be careful. Treat God with respect. Then he goes back into talking about the oppression of the poor. He talks about high officials who have higher officials above them, and there's higher ones above them. See, this idea of oppressors, even the oppressors get oppressed. It's, it's like the rule of the land. It's the law of the land. It happens, and he sees it, and he realizes it's the view from the corner office. You finally made it. You finally arrived. But there's somebody above you. There's a VP above you. And there's an uh, executive VP above him. And then there's a president above him. And there's a, there's a board of directors above him. And there's always somebody above somebody. 
And it's the view everybody wants to achieve. Is achieving wrong? No. Is acquiring wrong? No. Is any of these things, they're not wrong, it's your perspective. See, Solomon loved to achieve, but at some point you got to go, I've achieved. I, I, I've got enough. You know, there's a ministry in Dallas called Halftime, and it was started, and it was aimed at men who are in their late 40s, early 50s, late 50s and beyond, who have built their businesses, made their careers, made all the money they need, and it's called Halftime because it's, it, they want you to stop and rethink about what's out there. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Make more money? How much more money do you need? How many more houses do you need? How many more cars do you need? And that, I think that's what Solomon would say is there comes a point where, okay, be satisfied with the corner office. It's okay. Be satisfied with what you have. But he says, I became great. I surpassed everybody around me in Jerusalem. I had it all. He was king, but he still wanted more. There wasn't anybody above king, so he just kept accumulating stuff. I think it's one of the reasons he accumulated wives and concubines. I'm going to have more wives and concubines than any other king. I'm going to have more chariots than any other king. I'm going to have more this. I'm going to have more that. And so he, he was always trying to achieve and become greater in spite of his status, in spite of his wealth, in spite of his power, but he had no contentment. Again, what a way to live your life. No contentment, no, no satisfaction, always searching, always looking. And he tells us, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. It'll never get you where you want to go. And I know you're, you're sitting there going, just a little bit would. I'm not asking for a lot, just a little bit. Just a 10% raise, will, I'll, be, I'll be content. If you believe that, you, you really, you're not very wise. Because you're going to get it someday, and then what happens? Just 10 more percent. Just if I had 10 more percent. Because you're going to spend it. You're going to find ways to, to, to get rid of it. And he says, it will never satisfy. And I love this. He says, when the goods increase, when you get more, they increase who eat them. What does that mean? The more money you make, there's more people, you know, taking the money away from you. I have six kids. I just put my sixth one through college. And it's, I, I, I finally, the, the, the sucking sound has stopped. <laughs> now, I know it's going to be replaced by some other sucking sound, but at least that one's done. You know, we've written the last check to a university. But you're going to always have somebody who comes along and eats it, somebody who wants it, somebody who takes it, because you can't ever have enough. And when he talks about money, he's literally talking about silver. Precious metals, they'll never satisfy. And the word he uses for satisfy is sabah, and it means you'll never be fulfilled. It'll never do what you think it's going to do. And you'll have emptiness when you're really thinking you're going to get enrichment. All this stuff. I can't tell you how many things I've bought over my lifetime that I thought were going to make me so happy. And I get them, and I unwrap them, and I enjoy them for a day or so, and then I get bored with them. Because they don't satisfy. I got so much stuff in my home I don't use that I thought was going to make me happy, and I've ended up with emptiness from those things rather than enrichment. 
And that's what Solomon, sitting across the coffee table, is trying to tell you. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And he says, you know, it's sweet as the labor, the sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. Why? Because he's always worrying about his stuff. Am I going to lose it? Is somebody going to take it? Is it going to burn down? Is it going to get stolen? You know, when you've got a junker car, do you worry about it getting stolen? No, you pray it'll get stolen. <laughs> you insure it, and then you pray it'll get stolen. And so, all he's telling you, these are little proverbial statements that he's learned in his life. You know what? I'd rather have the sweet sleep of a laborer, somebody who works his tail off, doesn't have a whole lot, doesn't need a whole lot, but he sleeps really soundly. Unlike the rich guy who's waking up and can't sleep even though he's got a full stomach because he's worried. Well, he, he, he just keeps kind of laying it on us and he says, riches were kept. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Really, guys, all he's talking about, hoarding and bad investing. You know, just keeping your money and never being willing to share it with anybody, never being willing to bless anybody's life with it. And then you invest it, think you're going to get even more rich, and you lose it all. That may have happened to some guys in the room. I don't know. But for Solomon, I think he did both. And he realizes it doesn't add up. It doesn't pay to hoard. It doesn't pay to willy-nilly invest, driven by greed. Be content. Be happy. And he goes on and says, and he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall return. He's going to die someday, and he's going to take none of it with him. So once again, he's trying to drive home to you and I, enjoy what you have. And what he tells us is, God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. One of the wisest things in the entire book, and he says it multiple times. Realize that all that you have, whether it's a little or a lot, is a gift of God. Enjoy it. But see, we don't enjoy it because we're always looking for more. And so Solomon's sitting across that, he's sipping his coffee, and he's going, guys, listen, whatever you have, enjoy it because you never know when you might lose it. And getting more of it's not going to make it better. So take advantage of what you have. It's a gift of God. Enjoy it. It's your lot. It's what he's provided. And he goes on and says, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. He's not going to worry about all the affairs of life, the cares of life, because he's just going to enjoy life. I see some people who have very little, who, who have happier lives than I have. My wife goes to Ethiopia four times a year. I've been with her multiple times, and every time I go to Ethiopia, and she works with impoverished people who literally live on a dump. They live in shacks built out of trash. They forage for food. Their kids wear clothes scavenged from the dump. And these people have more joy than most Christians I know. Because they're, they're just happy to be alive. They're happy not to have AIDS. They're happy to not have a major illness. They're, they're happy to have some kind of covering over their head. And I'm not here trying to make you guilty that you have a nice house. And you have nice clothes. But guys, why can't we find joy in what we have? Why can't we be content? It's a gift from God. 
Don't live with the idea that enough is never enough. That's, that's a real problem in our society today. And what happens is your stuff owns you. All your stuff ends up owning you, and you become consumed. Consumption breeds consumers. You can't ever get enough. You can't buy enough. You're never satisfied. And with all the stuff comes all the responsibilities. You got to keep going. You got to keep working. You got to take care of it. And you can lose it all, and you're going to leave it all. That's, again, another theme that he keeps bringing back up. Someday you're going to leave it all behind. Is, is, this, is this stuff negative? I, I know it is. I've, I've blogged through this whole thing all summer. I'm teaching through it now. It's negative, but guys, it is a message you and I need to hear because we don't think about this. And our society is screaming in our ear that you don't have enough. You need more. You are not satisfied because you don't have enough stuff. And we see our friends caught up in it. And we see fellow believers caught up in it. And Solomon is sitting across the coffee table going, man, don't do it. Why did God put this book in the scriptures? Because he wanted you to hear this message. He wanted me to hear this message. Because the one thing you can't acquire is the ability to enjoy all that you accumulate. That comes from God. So then here's an interesting thing. The next time you buy something that you think you need or you think you want, ask God to give you the ability to enjoy it. And guess what? If you never find the ability to enjoy it, maybe God never wanted you to have it. Or if that ability goes away after two weeks because there's another version that comes out, maybe God says, you don't really need that. What you need is me. So the gift comes from God, and he would have us remember that. And one of the things we know that he's obsessed with is this idea that what happens next? What's the end of life? What's beyond death? So he says, who knows what's good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What's next? Remember, I told you, as a Hebrew, he had a really bad theology about the afterlife. They really didn't know what came next. They didn't have a theology of, of heaven like we do. And so the afterlife was scary. So here's his view from the deathbed, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6, and we'll end with this. There was an uncertainty in his life about death. Death scared the bejeevers out of him. Because he didn't know if there was a reward. He knew what rewards looked like in this life because he had them. But he didn't know about that, so he was scared of it. So he lived with this idea. Who, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? I don't know. Nobody knows. I'm the wisest man in the world, and I don't know. So I'm going to enjoy all the gusto I can here and now. He's unsatisfied. And this is probably the greatest message out of all the ones we've looked at is that, guys, don't live with an unsatisfied soul. He says his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. That is not how God wants you to live in this life. God doesn't want you to be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. God doesn't want you to think about heaven all the time to where you can't enjoy life. Enjoy life. Enjoy your home. Enjoy your job. Enjoy your wealth. Whatever wealth you have. Enjoy your children. Enjoy your grandkids. Enjoy life. But with the recognition that it all begins in the soul. 
And if your soul's never satisfied with life's good things, it means you're looking at the wrong thing for satisfaction. Your satisfaction can only come from Him. And it's the same word he used earlier, sabah, fulfilled, satisfied. You feel sated. See, the good things of the world, even though they're a gift of God, were never meant to satisfy you. Don't worship the gifts, worship the giver. Don't bow down to the gifts, bow down to the giver. Because he says, otherwise it results in a wandering of the appetite. And that word appetite is pretty interesting because it's a word for soul. It's nefesh. It's the wandering of the soul. I can't ever find enough. The unsatisfied soul wanders in search of contentment, and it can't ever find it. So here's Solomon. Here's his seven views of life as a judge, the corner office, old man looking back on life on his deathbed. Here's his views, but the bottom line is don't spend your life with a wandering soul. How do you, how do you make that not happen? Focus on the right thing. Focus on God. Focus on your relationship with Christ. Remember that all these things are gifts from God, but don't worship them. Hold them with an open hand, because what if you lose them? One of the greatest ways to find out if you worship your stuff is to lose your stuff. Have somebody take your stuff. And your reaction to that will reveal how much you've made a God out of your stuff. But if you can let it go, if you can say, it's okay. I'll be okay. That's everything. That's what he would have you concentrate on. So here's your questions for tonight. What are some ways which you find your soul wandering in search of contentment? What, is it, what does it gravitate towards? And it'll be different from every guy in the, for every guy in the room. What do you look at? What do you go, man, that, that would really make me content. If I had that. Share it. Be open. Be honest. Read Matthew 4, 4 and discuss how this view differs from all those we've just looked at. And you'll find out what it is when you look at it. Discuss which of these views best resonates with you and why. The view from the bench, the view from the other side of the fence, the view of the loner, the view of the corner office, and the view from the deathbed. I, I hope nobody picks the last one. Uh, I hope you don't feel like you're there. Some of you look like it, but you're not. Um, <laughs> As always, guys, it's important that you be honest, that you be open. Because for us to learn from Solomon, we've got to be open about what we feel and where we are. This guy is incredibly open. You need to be open. And if you are, I think God's going to do some great things by the time we're done with this series. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their patience. Thank, thank you for their willingness to come out each week and, and listen and dialogue and discuss. And I pray around the tables that you would uh, open up hearts and open up uh, mouths to talk and to share. And Father, that we would be gracious and loving with one another. But Father, we want to be men who don't have wandering souls. We want to be men who are on track with you and that we're happy and we're content and we have joy and we're satisfied with what you've given us and we find our contentment in you, not our stuff. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.